0: Welcome to CTU Speaks, episode Slaying Goliath.
1: Homie, I was taught by a Chicago teacher. Chicago teacher. Chicago teacher. I learned to read and write from a Chicago teacher so I'm inspired by the fight from my Chicago teachers.
0: I am your co-host Andrea Parker and I am joined with
1: Jim Staros. And today we're going to be talking with Diane Ravitch. She is a professor of education at New York University, and she's going to be talking about her latest book called Slaying Goliath. It's going to be very exciting.
0: How does Slaying Goliath have anything to do with education?
1: Well, she's talking about all these corporate reformers who she calls disruptors in the system. And I was, yeah, I know it's kind of weird because she talks about it in a way that they're trying to disrupt the system, but, you know, not in a, not in a beneficial way. They're trying to do it for their own benefit, for their own personal gain. And that's, that's definitely not what we need.
0: Yeah, making money off our students.
1: Exactly. And just even uh, a week or so ago, she had an article. She has a, a blog that has, let's say, slightly more listeners than our, blog, our uh, podcast here does. I think she's got something like 20 million subscribers or something insane like that. Anyway, she was talking about how our current Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, is trying to divert some of the money from the CARES Act which was supposed to be going to help um, people impacted by the coronavirus and help educational systems around the country, how she's trying to divert that into charter schools, into virtual charters, and how she's just using this as an opportunity to benefit her own agenda as opposed to what's best for the country.
0: That's very sad. It is. You know, that's very scary. When We look at our children as just ways to make money. I remember I was at a meeting and i um was listening to this charter school director, mm-hmm. and she was just talking to us about charter you know her um charter schools and how she made these charter schools so great, and she called her students clients Ugh. and I was so taken aback by yeah. that, and not just me, but other teachers in the room were just taken aback by clients, yeah, and she just kept saying, our clients, our clients, our clients, and it wasn't nothing personal relationship with the kids, and I yeah. just felt like no. This is just not the way to go. So kudos yeah. to Diane Ravitch, can to hear what she has to say and how she's trying to slay Goliath. And we know how that story ended.
1: So we're here with Diane Ravitch, research professor of education at New York University, historian of education, and also the founder and president of the Network for Public Education. How you doing today?
0: Great. So thank you so, so much for joining us. Um, We know that your book, Slaying Goliath, just came out earlier this year. And just really curious, why the title Slaying Goliath?
2: Well, I wanted to write about the resistance to this fake reform movement. Mm -hmm. And the resistance has been incredible. And the reason that I chose the David versus Goliath theme was that it seemed absolutely appropriate because Goliath is Mammoth. It's the federal right. government. Okay. It's billionaires. It's foundations. It's philanthropists. It's uh, all kinds of right-wing extremists. And they've right. all banded together, and they have plans to reinvent the schools, which usually means to privatize them. Yeah. And so they like to pretend that they're the weak ones because, after all, they're, they're those big, powerful teachers' unions. And that's ridiculous. So I wanted to make the point that the teachers and the parents and the students are, in fact fighting back, uh, and that they've had some amazing victories. And to me, and and when I talk uh, to the CTU tonight, I want to make this point, everything changed with the West Virginia strike Mm -hmm. because that really changed the public perception about teachers. And um, we've lived with this narrative about bad teachers and failing schools for Mm -hmm. 20, 30 years. And... When I trace back, where did West Virginia start? West Virginia started right here in Chicago. Right. And in my mind, and I say this in the book, the greatest hero of the resistance was Karen Lewis. Mm. She yeah. is you know, my personal hero. I, I love that woman. Uh, <laughs> she mobilized CTU in 2012 and uh, led a very successful strike that electrified the nation. Yeah. Right. And most of the media was against it. Most Absolutely. of the national media was against right. it. But it was very clear that the people of Chicago were with the teachers. And I think that what I've seen since then, starting in West Virginia and then going on to Oklahoma and to other, Colorado, Arizona, California, whenever teachers have gone out on strike, the public has been with them. Mm-hmm. And teachers really didn't understand how, how much they're liked, how much they're respected, and how much innate power they have. And I think that that was the lesson that Karen gave us. Uh, and it took a while for others to have the courage to follow her lead. Mm-hmm.
0: So you're saying that, you know, our government and politicians and billionaires and philanthropists, they all are banded together to try to privatize education. So my question is that what is wrong with privatization? What's, what's evil about privatization what, of education?
2: What's evil about privatization is that privatization destroys what belongs to all of us. The public schools belong to all of us. Privatization divvies up things into a competition in which it'll be like a free market. And the free Mm -hmm. market is never uh, good for the losers because the free market always has winners and losers. It has a few winners and a lot of losers. Mm -hmm. That really betrays what public education is supposed to be about. Public education has never, ever achieved the goal of equal educational opportunity, but it's the goal towards which we strive and what privatization says is give up the goal. Don't even strive for equal opportunity because that's beyond anything. We can't even try for that. Right. Let's just go for competition, winners and losers. Let's pick the kids who are the top kids and give them the best. And then the others will all be losers. And we'll rank them. We'll use the standardized tests to rank them and rate them and stigmatize the losers. And right. part of my book is... a. Uh, uh, a documentation of why standardized testing is so flawed because it's designed to rank and rate and stigmatize children. Uh, There will be those at the top, and it's a bell curve. And the nature of a bell curve is half will be at the top and half will be at the bottom. And no matter how much you talk about closing the achievement gap, you have an instrument that is designed to have a gap. So you'll always have half the kids saying, I'm a loser. And then it turns out when you look at who's winning, It's the kids who already have the most. And when you look at who's losing, it's the kids who who have the least. It's the kids who have disabilities and the kids who are English learners and the kids who come from tough neighborhoods and have two and a half strikes against them. Those kids will be in the bottom half of the bell curve. By telling them year after year, you failed and you failed and you failed, you take away all motivation for them to try anything because they know that next time they'll fail again. So I think it's a, it's a very unfair system. We don't need to be doing this. And the mindset in Washington, D.C., and in our state capitals is so locked into this idea of a race, a competition, winners and losers, right. a marketplace, global competitors. And this is what we have to turn around. It's a huge struggle to get people to, to accept the idea Every child has something to offer, right, and we right. have to bring whatever we can to help every child be their best.
0: And that's equity. So, when you say the privatization is, you know, a competition, do you mean like all private schools, or you mean just schools that they're you know, charterizing, or are you saying all private schools, like K through twelve? What are, I'm saying is that necessary.
2: alternatives to public education, mm-hmm. the school choice. Mm-hmm. School choice, by definition, choo- the schools choose the sco- the students. And even when they say they do it by lottery, they usually have mechanisms to rig the lottery so that they end up with the kids they want and don't get the kids that they don't want. And then the kids they don't want get bounced back to public schools. And then they say, oh, look how bad the public school is. It has the kids we didn't want because they wouldn't take them.
1: That gets to one of the questions I had. Uh, One of the claims you make in your book is that national ed policy is based on selective facts. I was wondering if you'd give a couple examples of that. What do you mean by selective facts, and how is that harmful?
2: Well, one example would be No Child Left Behind. And I contend that we, as a nation, have been breathing the toxic fumes of No Child Left Behind now for t- almost 20 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was passed by Congress in 2001, signed into law January 8th, 2002, and it was based on a selective, not even a fact, a selective hoax. Uh, The selective (laughs) hoax was that there had been a Texas miracle. And we now know 20 years later, there was no Texas miracle. It was just campaign rhetoric. And a lot of Democrats bought it. And there were as many Democrats voting for it as there were Republicans. Mm -hmm. And it was actually a very dramatic and transformational law for many reasons. First of all, because it gave the federal government more power than it ever had in state and local affairs and controlling the schools. And secondly, it introduced this idea that we should test every child every year in grades three through eight, and then we would be able to somehow raise up everybody if we knew their test scores. And it was a hoax. We we didn't raise up everybody. The same kids who were left behind in 2000 are still being left behind in 2020.
0: That's true. So where are we in slaying Goliath? Are we are we winning? Is he still <laughs> slaying us? Where are we in terms of slaying this? demon of privatization well the theme of my book is that uh
2: things are actually turning around okay that the charter people and the privatization people are like on their back foot right now they've been thrown off balance by a lot of elections recently like the election in kentucky Uh, kentucky went by 30 points for trump and then turned around and elected a democratic governor largely because of teacher support Uh, virginia elected a democratic governor Uh, based on teacher support. Uh, There have been a number of key elections where uh, teachers knocked out uh, really very ultra-conservative anti-education legislators and took their places. So we've seen uh, some important victories. I think one of the turning points uh, was the NAACP taking a stand in 2016. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that the charter movement has done very cleverly over the years has been to co-opt the language of civil rights. And so you have the most right-wing people in the country, billionaires, claiming to be leading the civil rights issue of our time. You know, we hear this over and over again. Even Donald Trump said that in his first State of the Union. And Betsy DeVos has said that. And, and, you know, these are not people who ever cared about civil rights in their lifetime. (laughs) Yet they use that same language. And then they will find people and pay them a lot of money and put them out front and say, Uh, But this is what black and Hispanic parents want. They really want charter schools. They don't want public schools. Uh, And it's a great hoax. I really think there needs to be an organization dominated by people of color who stand up for public education because I'm a white woman. And so people say, oh, you're a white woman. So, you know, of course, how can you understand? But every time I go to a union hall and I've been to many of them, I see far more black and brown faces than I do in any of the conservative think tanks that are supporting this stuff. Right. So I think this has been a deliberate hoax to persuade uh, black parents and brown parents that somehow the billionaires are on their side and they're not. I know that for, they are not on their side. They're on the side of privatization and that will not benefit them. Right. So we really do need black and brown people uh, of, who b- belong to unions, who don't belong to unions, who are parents, who are concerned about public education, to step up and speak out for their public schools. Right. Uh, so I think that uh, it's, it's a challenge to everybody who cares about public education to stand up for public schools and say, this is part of our democracy. Mm-hmm. And if we limit access and say you, you the schools choose... Uh, the the parents don't choose, Uh, we will restrict our democracy. We have to make every school far better than it is. I mean, I don't believe in the status quo. And I have a chapter in the book saying, who does the status quo belong to? Mm -hmm. The status quo belongs to these disruptors, the people that I call Goliath. And I think that we are actually making A lot of progress because you have the NAACP bringing out a report saying that we should have a moratorium on charters. Mm. Uh, This was endorsed by Black Lives Matter, and this was endorsed by uh, the Mexican-American Legal Defense Fund. And they just said, slow it down. you got to stop being selective. you got to stop kicking out the kids you don't want. You have to have accountability. You have to have transparency. And the response from the charter sector has been, we're not interested. I mean, we we own all the leaders of power. We don't have to listen to you. Right. The other thing we've seen that I think has really uh, thrown the privatizers for a loop is that they made very dramatic promises about if they got control, then they, w- they would close achievement gaps, they would lift test scores, everybody would be high scoring. And then we look at the only reliable national measure we have, which is the called the NAEP, the National Assessment of Educational Progress And the scores have been flat for basically 12 years. So for as long as they've been in control, nothing has happened. And the kids at the bottom are actually even lower at the bottom than they were before.
0: So how do you motivate parents? Because parents look at charter schools, still a lot of parents look at charter schools and say, yes, this is a step up. This is high performing. This is better than the neighborhood school where I live. So what do you tell parents who also listen to the podcast, uh, on I how so. to combat that. Like, why is it not in their best interest to send their child to charter school? Because they think, like, this is high performing. The building is new. It looks better. They're making promises because we have so many parents who are, you know, middle income. That's what they send their kids. A lot of parents who are middle class and and are not into selective enrollment schools and don't want to go to a private school, they send their child to charter school. So what do you tell them?
2: Well, I, I've been asked this question often, and I always say to parents, you have to make the best choice for your child. Mm-hmm. And if you want to choose a charter school, that's fine. But you have to be aware of certain things. First of all, they may not want your child. They may decide if your child has disabilities, they don't want your child. They may decide if your child gets low test scores, they don't want your child. They may decide if your child is uh, ha- has any behavior issues, they'll kick him out. So all of these things... Basically, you're giving up a lot of rights that you have in a public school mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. you enroll in a charter school, and you may find uh, in the middle of the school year that the charter suddenly closes. Mm. This has happened all over the country where true. charters suddenly—they're like a business and a shoe store—and they go out of business in January, and the kids are out on the street. And
0: they don't tell yeah. you sometimes; they just come <laughs> yeah. in and school's closed. Yep. And yep. <laughs> yeah, right. And you
2: know, and you will never find a public school that closes suddenly in the middle of the year which with no notice. So that's a risk you take, but it's your choice. You're the parent. Uh, But the appeal I make is to policymakers, and that is to the people who are in charge, whether it's the mayor, uh, the school superintendent, secretary of education. Their job is to provide and secure the very best public schools they can because that's their job. Their job is not to break up the public schools, not to diminish them, not to take resources away from whoever is in charge should be fighting so that every child has access to an excellent public school no matter where they live.
1: I was wondering if maybe you could talk for a minute about how this privatization affects the community. Because um, one of the things a lot of these uh, reformers or disruptors say mm-hmm. is that if we just had that one great teacher or that one great school, poverty would be over, everybody would be lifted up, the clouds would open, the seas would part. Um, why is that incorrect?
2: Well, it, it it just basically never happens. The, the impact of charters in neighborhoods is to be very divisive. And typically what happens is uh, particularly neighborhoods that are black and brown get saturated with charters and parents are overwhelmed with choices and right. they don't even know how to choose amongst all these different charters because they all look pretty much the same. They're all making great promises. Mm-hmm. And in the meanwhile, you may have 10 kids on the same block, 10 kids in the same building, going to 10 different schools. Right. That has an impact on the community right. because in, in the past, when all those kids went to the same school, the school became a focus of community. It became a focus of organizing. Right. It became a place where parents could meet and talk about issues that they had around the neighborhood, the community, the school, right. where they could band together and make demands but when exactly. every one of their children go to a different school, uh, they've lost all political power.
1: Right. I mean, it really hurts the ability for people in that neighborhood to organize against issues they've got. And we've talked before on the podcast about how this particularly affects black and brown teachers within the community and disrupts their ability to fight and demand for what's important within the community.
0: That's true, because you know a lot of charter schools don't even have local school councils. Right. So parents um, have no power on right. What uh, how things go, how things are run, how it functions, who mm-hmm. the principal is—they have no power, and a lot of them don't understand that. So exactly. yes, they do. Yep.
2: There's there's another aspect to charter schools, which I was watching a lecture last night given by the uh, dean emerita at Howard University, and she said that charter schools, TFA, all of these so-called reforms, really meant to advance gentrification. Right. They help to clear out neighborhoods yep. and to. Uh, set aside safe spaces where white middle-class families can move in to what is really very desirable real estate. And so the black kids get shuttled off somewhere else. The white kids have a place where they can feel that they're safe. And uh, next thing you know, there are high-rise condos and Starbucks and all kinds of fancy uh, luxury shops Mm -hmm. coming up. And this has happened in city after city.
0: So what's the next step? What do we do next in in order to slay Goliath or um, slay the destroyers of public education? What's the next step? The two things
2: that I tried to do in this book was, first of all, to give hope and encouragement to people who've been standing up and fighting, like mm-hmm. the CTU has, yes. and like uh, the teachers in West Virginia and the teachers in many other cities, and because they've had 20 years of being mm-hmm. beaten up on, right. and it's enough, and they have to, I think it's important for them to see, we've had some real victories, and I give a lot of examples, and a lot of them come from Chicago, uh, where you got rid of a mayor who closed 50 schools in a single day. I don't think that will ever happen again. Uh, and there have been some very heroic figures in, in Chicago, not only Karen Lewis, but I think of G2 Brown, who's mm-hmm. been a, a great civil rights leader in fighting right. for public education. So I wanted to give hope and encouragement to teachers and parents who believe in public education. But I wanted to send another message and I wanted to send that to the uh, people I call the disruptors. I wanted to tell them that everything they're doing has actually hurt children. Mm-hmm. It's hurt communities. It's not helping. Uh, they claim that they could achieve all these miracles, that they would, test scores would go up, go through the roof, that everybody would end up uh, with equitable outcomes. None of this has happened. Uh, there, there's, it's been a long stagnant period and a period of disruption where communities went through upheavals, uh, schools were t- closed, uh, neighborhoods were torn apart. Uh, we've seen a mass exodus of black families out of Chicago, and I suspect that's true in other communities mm-hmm. as well. Oh, yeah. uh, New Orleans had a, a mass exodus because mm-hmm. of the hurricane. Uh, there were 60,000 children in public school there before the storm, and then after the storm, there were only 48,000. And now they wiped out the union, they wiped out, uh, right. they fired all the teachers. Uh, that's a lot of disruption. It is. Yeah. And they're doing that still uh, in places like Indianapolis and in many other cities. Uh, so I wanted to send them a message that nothing that they have done has worked, that the, none of the promises they've made have come true. They failed, they're losers. And I want them to think about better and more creative ways to spend their money. First of all, I'd love them to become lobbyists to uh, say, how about raising our taxes? Mm-hmm. Think that'll happen. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Probably not. <laughs> uh, but that wouldn't that be wonderful if you had uh, Bill Gates say, you know, I'm worth $110 billion and uh, I should be paying more taxes. Yes. Right. Let the community um,
1: decide where in, it goes. And the
2: Walton family, which is worth $150 billion, And Jeff Bezos, who's personally worth Probably one hundred and ten or twelve or fifteen billion, they should all say, "I'm not paying enough taxes, uh, right. but the Waltons actually are suing different localities to to lower their property taxes, right. and when they lower their property taxes, that hurts public schools
1: right
2: and in in, in district right. after district, you see public schools losing uh teachers and losing classes and right. and increasing class size because of the competition with charters, which doesn't help anybody right.
0: Now you mentioned earlier about how charter schools opening the door basically to gentrification. So how do you think that should there be some kind of like housing policies that um, governments or localities should institute mm-hmm. to help combat like the, the rising cost of uh, rent in these neighborhoods? So charter schools won't be the open door to gentrification.
2: You know, I I, I don't know how to control housing policy. Mm-hmm. I don't. I hardly know how to control education policy. <laughs> uh, but what I do believe is that. Charters should be uh, authorized only by the local school district and the local school district should make a decision and say, how will it affect our fiscal stability if we open a charter in direct competition with local public schools? And if it's bad for the local public schools, it shouldn't open. And if there's no need for it, they shouldn't get authorization. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of the laws have been written by charter lobbyists. And Mm -hmm. so they have written them to benefit themselves financially and to protect their non-accountability. So I think the challenge today for those of us who are concerned for the survival of our democratically governed public schools have to become active in rewriting the charter laws so that charters are authorized only by the local school board and so that there is a consideration of their fiscal impact before they're authorized and so that they are completely accountable both fiscally and academically.
1: To stay on the, the policy thing just for a second, if If you were mayor of Chicago, uh, our current mayor ran on the platform that she was going to improve the schools and, and be on the side of teachers and then really fought hard against all the wraparound services and reforms we fought for here with CTU. What would you do? What would be the first one or two things, particularly looking at education in the community, that you would do if you were elected mayor today?
2: Well, I, I would take a, a holistic view, uh, which I, I don't know to what extent it aligns with the CTU platform, uh, but I would make sure that there were health services in every community uh, that were available both to families and children, uh, that every school had access to mental health services, because I think that given all the pressures in our society, right. uh, there is a crisis in, in cool. mental health for children and for families. Uh, the pressures, the economic pressures, the social pressures on people are just enormous. Uh, and I would look to to make sure that children have adequate nutrition. Uh, I would do everything possible to reduce the stress of testing. I think that testing itself is a um, a burden on children because it it's based on a false premise. So why are we doing it? And I think that we we should look to people say, I want to know how my child is doing. And I always say, why don't you ask their teacher? Right. Their teacher is the one who knows how they're doing. If you want to know how Chicago compares to other cities, go look at the NAEP scores. The NAEP will tell you how Chicago compares to uh, Detroit, New York, Milwaukee, Washington, D.C., and uh, Philadelphia, and a lot of other cities. That's all there on the NAEP. You don't need to test every child every year to find that out. Right. You have to remember, really, there is no high-performing nation in the world that tests every child every year. So we're imposing this stressful burden on children that the test is everything right, and it makes them feel really bad because half yep, of them of are going to be uh, stigmatized
1: right one of the other claims you make in the book um, that the disruptors argue that these great teachers in great schools will fix poverty and we talked about that a little bit earlier, but how is that really missing the the real key issue here and and what is the the fix if there is one
2: it's wonderful to have great teachers the problem is that when we start figuring out who a great teacher is we look at student test scores and that's really not a good way to identify great teachers uh, that's just a way of saying who is in your classroom right and the teachers who have the, whose students have the highest scores are those who are teaching in the most most affluent communities and so suddenly they're the great teachers. But if they change places with uh, teachers of children with special needs, children uh, who who are English learners, suddenly they're not great teachers right. anymore. So we don't really have any way of saying who's the great teacher and who's not a great teacher. And to say, and I know that Wendy Cop of Teach for America has said this in the past. Uh, we don't really have to fix poverty. We can, if we have great schools, great schools will fix right. poverty. And we know that's not true because we've had Teach for America now for 30 years and they haven't fixed poverty anywhere. Right. So you really mm-hmm. have to just look at the facts and say, where has your theory proven to be true? And it, the answer
1: is nowhere. nowhere. Right. And it, it seems that also it also it tends to focus on those individual success stories, that if I was living in this situation and I rose above it, then we all could do it. It's another way to just blame the victims in the situation or blame the kids for their own situation that they did not choose to put themselves in.
0: And I know that you mentioned before that um, with No Child Left Behind Act, it focused more on test, the tested subjects and teachers teaching mostly on focus on tested subjects. Can you tell us how you think that hurt has hurt education overall? I think of education
2: as a process between a teacher and student's in which the teacher's excited about what she's teaching, the kids get excited about it, and they want to please their teacher. They really, usually kids respect their teacher and they really want to please them. And if they see that the teacher loves what he or she is doing, they get interested. And so there's this mutual feedback, which is one of the reasons why in in this book, uh, I kind of put down this idea of using uh, screens to teach children. a lot of the entrepreneurs today are pushing technology and calling it personalized learning. I call it depersonalized learning. Yeah. So to me, real education is that excitement that happens between the teacher who is motivated and the, the students who in turn are eager to show that they can do it. Y- you light fires. Right. And that's what I'd like to see happening all over. Where it will it's most likely to happen is where there are reduced class sizes. Right. And one of the biggest problems, especially in urban districts, is class sizes are way too large. Right. And I was in Los Angeles recently, recently, and there are classes out there of 35, 40, 45 kids. That's impossible. You yeah. can't have that personal connection with a large class size like that. I think it's reasonable to insist on smaller classes. Very wealthy people who send their children to elite private schools expect to have 18 kids in a class. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when exactly Mayor Bloomberg right. sent his children off to elite schools, they had 15 kids in a class. Right. That's nice, you know. That costs a lot of money, and probably we won't get there. But we should certainly recognize how important that is because the student is known and has that personal connection with the teacher, and the teacher knows every one of her students. Right, and that should be. One of the number one demands when we say to the uh, philanthropists, like whether it's Bill Gates or the Waltons or any of these other very wealthy people who want to reinvent the schools. Hey, why don't you give us the money to reduce class sizes? That would really make a difference.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, one, one other question that I've got is I hear a lot of, well, particularly non-teachers talk about this issue, but the idea of merit pay. The idea that if you're a good teacher, you get paid more. In most companies, most businesses, that's what they try to do, reward the people who are most successful. Why why do you see this as a problem?
2: Well, merit pay has been tried, oh, for well over 100 years. It's never succeeded, not in education. Uh, And there are people in business who think that it doesn't succeed there either because it creates a competition amongst workmates where they're not looking out for the the good of the company, they're right. only looking out for themselves. Right. And um, there's a very famous writer about business uh, named Edwards Deming, and he was considered the guru of, of uh, reinventing Japanese uh, the Japanese corporation. And he wrote at length about the uh, viciousness of merit pay. Mm. And he said that the, you hire the, the pe- best people you can, you give them the best support you can, you help them uh, be the best they can, and then you let them do their job. Do their job. Yep. And you don't give them incentives. And what we've learned, and I have a chapter about this, is that punishments and rewards actually are disincentives. Uh, that when you punish people, uh, they lose their uh, motivation. When you give them a reward, they'll work only as long as the reward is there. But when you take the reward away, they, they, they lose their motivation because right. their motivation is tied to the reward. So what modern cognitive psychologists say, and I cite their work uh, at length, is that what people need is they need a sense of autonomy. They need to be, believe that they can do the job, and they need mastery in their work. And if you let them do their work, they will succeed at their work, but it won't be because they're being offered a few dollars more. Uh, There was a huge test of merit pay 10 years ago at Vanderbilt University. They did this in Nashville, Tennessee, and they offered math teachers a bonus of $15,000 if they could raise test scores. And they had a control group and an experimental group. And at the end of three years, uh, they concluded that the merit pay made no difference at all. Both groups got exactly the same results because both groups were doing the best they knew how. Uh, And offering a reward, didn't make teachers teach better. They were already doing the best they knew how to do.
1: So it sounds like you're saying if you treat teachers like professionals, they'll do well. Right. That's a crazy thought. (laughs) That's very important. (laughs) Yes.
0: So I'm thinking about these disruptors and I'm thinking about this, this privatization of public schools. And there are a lot of people working together, as you mentioned, Karen Lewis, you know, a lot of unions, a lot of unions, a lot of parents banding together with teachers. But what is going to happen? I'm just thinking about the urgency. This is the urgency that we ought to have as a society. What's going to have, what's going to end up being the end result if we don't work together, band together, uh, form allies and get rid of the privatization of public schools? What's going to end up happening?
2: I'd say that the danger of the privatization movement is that we will see public education become a dumping ground for the worst students, the students that the charters and the vouchers don't want. Uh, We'll also, and I think this is right now a very scary possibility, uh, there's a Supreme Court decision that's going to come down uh, called Espinosa versus Montana, uh, where this ultra-conservative Supreme Court might rule that we are every state is required to support religious education. That would be a terrible burden on public funding because religious schools are are not regulated. They they might be regulated in the future and they might grow to regret this. Uh, But as it stands now, uh, when you look for example at Florida, which has four or five different voucher programs, they have public funds, a billion dollars a year going to religious schools. They don't take the test, they have no accountability, whatever. Uh, The religious schools can hire high school dropouts as teachers. Uh, So they're getting a substandard education to begin with. And in addition to that, they discriminate. Uh, They discriminate. Some of them are racist. Some of them are uh, homophobic. Uh, Some of them openly state we don't accept gay students and we don't accept gay families. Wow. Uh, And they're being paid for with public funds. In Florida, they have $2 billion a year going to charter schools, which are almost unregulated. They have to take the state test. But they come and go like daylilies. They open and close with great regularity. <laughs> so I can see uh, this becoming the norm uh, where public money is flowing to unaccountable religious schools where religions pop up overnight that none of us ever heard of mm. before. Right. Um, and where basically it's homeschooling uh, with a religious caste taking public money. And I've heard a number of cases where uh, children were abused in homeschooling situations because there's no reporting. Mm. Uh, in a wow. public school, you're required to report abuse. So it would be as if we turn the clock back to, let's say, the 18th century before we had public schools, wow. where the those who had the most get the best. And society as a whole then has no obligation to make any effort to provide equality of educational opportunity. And as I've said wow. before, we are far from that now. Our public schools are far from being good enough we have to fight to make them much better than they are. We have to reduce class sizes. Mm -hmm. We have to give the teachers the supports they need to be successful. We have to give the children the social and and mental health and uh, services that they need. We're not doing that now, Uh, but that's the fight we should wage to make our public schools far better, not to abandon them. And I think Mm -hmm. the privatization movement would abandon them.
1: Wow. Well, thanks for listening to this episode of CTU Speaks with Diane Ravitch. It was very exciting, and we got a lot of really good information. What do you think there, Miss Parker?
0: It's always wonderful to hear a voice from someone who wants to protect the sanctity of public education. So I am Team Diane Ravage all team day Ravage. long. And also, I hope that you are Team CTU, mm-hmm. because we just partner with Fox uh, and our affiliate in Chicago, W uh, Fox 32, WPWR. We started launching our our series called We Still Teach. It started Monday, May 11th, and it's going to end on Friday, June 19th. So please, um, you know, you, you look at the content with your students. Tell it to parents um, because we have content every day to reach certain demographics of students. So please view the show. It's going to be great.
1: Definitely. It's going to have a lot of cool um, little recordings about lessons that are created by CPS teachers about how they've been teaching their kids. And it's content derived from us in our experience here in Chicago. And we're going to have an opportunity to air them on uh, on TV for everybody to see around the city. It'd be kind of cool.
0: That's right. We still teach, as always. And how can how can the listeners reach us, Jim?
1: They can reach us by phone at area code 312-467-8888. They can also get us by email at ctuspeaks at ctulocal1.org.
0: Excellent. You You can't can't beat beat that. that. We are CTU Speaks. Well, we speak what matters. Yeah, we do. Have a great day.
1: See ya.